Hello and welcome to Unfrozen. I'm Dan Saharik. And I'm Greg Lindsay. And welcome to the first in a pair of special episodes devoted to the secret lives of architecture and interior spaces, you might say. Um, it's not often that we get outreach from a potential guest where the timing of a photography exhibition is synced to the expiration of the Statue of Limitations. But that is exactly the case of our guest today, the photographer Zachary Balber, who is displaying his new work, uh, new, new portfolio of work, Intimate Strangers, in Miami as part of, of course, uh, Miami Art Basel coming up. Um, Zach, I'll introduce him quickly before we get into it. He was born and raised in Pittsburgh, uh, but moved to Miami at the age of 13. The entire setting of Intimate Strangers is all in Miami real estate. I would certainly encourage you all, we'll make, make sure there's links in the show notes to the incredibly provocative photography of Zach, which we'll get into in a moment. Um, but yeah, also runs uh, Zachary Balber Photography, which is a collective of work that's done both apparently fine art and commercial. Um, but yeah, it's really a pleasure to have Zach on here to talk about work that shows him in various states of undress in Miami real estate that ranges from the gaudy to high rises that features scenes that are in kitchens and bedrooms. And one, I think my favorite, Zach, before we get into, is one that appears where he's in a sort of uh, it looks like a velvet bathroom where he's about to either pray or be interrogated at gunpoint. So uh, there's some fascinating images we'll get into. But thanks for joining us, Zach. Oh, what a pleasure, gentlemen. I uh, really appreciate the, the grand introduction. Um, I'm excited to have this conversation because I've done a little bit of research about both of you guys. And I think that there is a, a beautiful intersection about tech, portraiture, fine art. And I think the fine arts sort of encompass all. So I, I really look forward to this conversation with both of you. Well, thank you. Well, Zach, obviously the starting point is what inspired this exhibition? Obviously, you, yeah, you've lived in Miami since you were a teenager. You are no stranger to it. And it's post, I mean, for us, it's interesting in the post-pandemic era. I mean, some of your favorite photography evokes Miami Vice, but some of it other, you know, also just evokes like some of the high rises that have been built. And we're very, I think Dan and I both have probably a, a wish list of like buildings we're going to ask you about if you manage to get inside. But but what was the original impetus of this, of taking realtor showings and turning into this sort of gonzo photography? <laughs> Where do I begin? Uh, I, I think I could go back even um, as a child, because I think part, part of the allure for me of luxury architecture started from childhood so i my father would take me driving by miami beach and the other locations in miami very exclusive locations and i would look out of the window and and imagine sort of like fantasy land disney world what, what would it be like to live in these places um so i think from early childhood there was a bit of fetish about this um these beautiful structures um things that inverted gravity there was there was an artwork about it that even as a kid i was drawn to so i think fast forward to later in my life uh building out a photography business i somehow stumbled into architecture real estate photography because i needed to fill my book and keep moving forward as an artist and to support myself so i had not really learned um how to do architecture photography my first my first break or my first introduction to the world of 
big photography. I worked with this photographer, Bruce Weber, for a couple of years. I was his assistant uh, when he came to Miami, and I was in undergraduate school. So, you know, I met him waiting tables, and I asked him to shine his shoes while he takes pictures, whatever it takes to get on a set with Bruce. And um, about two weeks later, he asked me to be a part of Abercrombie and Fitch summer season. Let's go. I didn't know what an F-stop was. I didn't know what shutter speed meant. I didn't know much about anything. So I'm catapulted from waiting tables to the highest level fashion photography on earth that I just was not prepared for. So I got sort of wooed. You know, I I feel like I got seduced into image making, uh, not just from Bruce, but I think as digital technology kept becoming more and more I kept seeing essentially how we frame ourselves how portraits get created um, how we portray ourselves now and we're in an image dominated society and there's a writer who I love is a dear friend his name is Marvin Heiferman and Marvin Heiferman I feel like is a a modern day photo or image theologian who works with scientists works with artists about the use of images he published a book called Photography Changes Everything, and it's a little little excerpts about how photography has changed every aspect of modern life. And let me dive back into the real estate idea. So um, I'm starting to, to build my portfolio, and I work with a company in Chicago, will remain nameless, um, and they asked me to be the Miami market lead for their photography division in real estate. So... I didn't know much about it. I was willing to do it to support myself. So um, they start sending me on photo shoots and I'm going to visit, you know, middle class homes. I don't, I don't want to say poor homes, but middle class, upper middle class. And then occasionally I would have these like delicious treats of the, the, the major luxury and opulent places. And I just couldn't, you know, I think we all imagine how people live, but I think when you see it on a daily basis, starts to change the way you think about yourself, how you live, what your environment looks like, um, what does home feel like. And I think I met this architect from Mexico who works with, uh, works with private clients and he lives with them for three months and he actually builds their dream home based on their actual, li- how they live in their space. So he sort of monitors their behavior and I thought, wow, this is like a whole bubble that I've just never really... Uh, uncovered or looked at so I think the more I dove into this arena I kept thinking this is how people live I'm being invited in as though I am royalty like I am the photographer to shoot these big houses so it felt like um, like I was on a vacation or I was being courted like a buyer so I'm being perused through the houses I'm showing I'm showing the houses the the architecture the little details and I'm thinking what a privilege this is so I think I think it's important to establish that I'm a I'm an artist who went to art school and studied fine art and I feel like the reason I, I feel that's important is because I think everyone now is a photographer which is totally okay with me everyone's a documenter I feel like we have all been sort of taught to commodify our own lives run commercials on our own lives so it's kind of we're in a we're in a strange place of the commodification of everyday life and i think after a while shooting real estate got a little boring you know three walls this room wide angle lens let's distort this 
Um, and meanwhile, while I'm doing this, I'm watching the agents and the agent's assistants or the architects or you name it, who is in the space with me, sort of sneaking off to take their own selfies off of the $20 million balcony or in this beautiful egg chair or, you know, and at the time there was different times where I was single and I would go on dating apps and I would see people posting these pictures of this fictitious identity of them day in the life of me what look where I'm at today look where I'm at today and I thought what a way to elevate your own personal image um, and and at the same time it was frustrating because people were you know women men they were portraying themselves in a, in a way that wasn't real at all like this isn't your day-to-day -day. you're you're a guest here so I couldn't help but think um, there's a writer named Susan Sontag who I absolutely love and she has a book called on photography and she says something to the effect of we none of us photograph things that don't matter like we don't photograph things that don't matter to us whatever that may mean so I kept thinking well I'm always on this side of the lens it would be kind of interesting to see if 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 I become the subject of my own gaze even psychologically speaking I brought this to therapists I worked with this um, this woman in Estonia so two of my best friends are information security experts, white cat hackers, some of the best in the business. So I think having them as best friends made me think about life, about the art world, about systems to be hacked, to be, you know the set of rules, Zach, there's a certain subset, so what are we gonna do with this subset? How are we gonna work outside the box? And so as an artist, Many artists are waiting, hopefully, that their beautiful creations are going to be consumed by the well-to-do. And they're hoping against hope and playing chess as much as they can to get this to happen. So I sort of thought of this body of work like photo-Marxism, if you will. Um, because the agents essentially could get what they needed, which was real estate propaganda to promote the listing. And I could also leave with my Willy Wonka, Charlie and the Chocolate for golden ticket. But I kept thinking, what's the harm in taking a photo? Because all these other people with Botox and pushing their boobs out and the whole thing were taking these selfies and promoting it on their pages and promoting their self-image as this elevated perception. And I thought, uh, I actually thought of Cindy Sherman because she is another favorite of mine. And I thought how her film stills where she really... She really took on the personas of every woman. And I thought, you know, when is the last time I saw a series of a heterosexual man try on all the sizes of what a man could be? And I don't think I've seen that. So a lot of what I want to do as an artist is to contribute like new type of images or new conversation of images to the medium of photography. Because one of the questions that I think you cannot get around now as a photographer, as a photograph, a, they call it a lens-based artist now. That's the new cheeky term. So how do you make an image that matters in 2023 when every, well, you know, when Twitter and Google, everyone's up billions of photos every day. And I've really been racking my head about this because I work with painters and sculptors who make one of one things and they're very unique. And I understand this like preciousness of this. And photography is the middle-class medium. I mean, it changed everything. Uh, before, you had to save, you know, a lot of money, or if you're well-to-do, you could have somebody paint you and your family 
as like this family propaganda portraits. You could share them. It was a way to promote the family's image. And then photography came out. And now the middle class, if they saved for a whole month, could get this family image. And they could promote themselves as though they're doing well, too. So I, I really love the idea of photography that just kind of knocked everything into this like democratization of, of power, if you will. Um, so... So that, that, that's a lot. I would just say to start, thank you for all of that so, as a way of weaving together all those threads. Um, unfortunately, because podcasts are not the most visual medium, I want to I stop right there. And if you could explain beforehand back over to Dan, uh, the mechanistic aspect of what you did. So it sounds like, and I was, I was curious about this, so it sounds like in your role as a photographer you got this access. I was curious if you were just going to open houses. But the way it's described is that you, using a remote, using brought, did you bring in a camera? I'm curious about the camera you used. You shot photos of yourself in various stages of undress and intimacy in this. And so, yeah, I'm curious about how you selected the targets, because we're ultimately an architecture podcast. So what were some of the more notable structures, buildings? How did you find them and obtain access to them? But it sounds like you, you, you leverage your professional aspect versus just simply posing as a buyer. Our second guest in the series, Andy Schmid, a photographer, created a fictional persona of a billionaire and basically used subterfuge to get her way into buildings. But I'm curious like how you used your own approach. Well, essentially, the pa- like I see more photography as like a password than a printed image. Right, the act of being a photographer is more of a password with mm, the ability to get into places. So, okay, you need me to document these homes. I'm also an artist who understands fine art. So when I'm being escorted through the homes, I'm like, hey, that's a nice Chagall piece. That's a beautiful Basquiat. And the homeowners who appreciate these one of one things are like, wow, this guy really knows what he's talking about here. You know, this is not just a photographer. This is somebody who has like a certain amount of knowledge. So I wish I could tell you that these were pre-plotted targets, but I think I started to use my day-to-day documentation for, so it wasn't really, there's some, there's some where I matched the interiors. There's some, there, there is a certain amount of serendipity that happened in this, in this body of work that I couldn't have manifested if I tried to do this. I mean, there was a room where I walked into it and it had my name on the wall, Zachary and literally on the wall and it was a version of of the spoiled Zachary that I've never got to experience as a child and I'm walking into this room. Um, There are other elements where um, I could say in Tommy Hilfiger's house when I walked into that place I could not believe the decor. Um, The angles, everything was painted strange. I couldn't imagine that somebody lived here because there was there was like a foreshortening with how things were painted as, as though it was an artwork. Um, so I think what started to happen is it became like an ink blot test. So I wouldn't necessarily respond to every environment, but what started to happen is this became a stage, a private stage for me. So I would set up my camera for the real estate angle, and this was a very important part of the process. I would set up the camera for the perfect vantage point of that room. And essentially when the realtor was on the other side of the wall, tinkering on their phone or, you know, what's going on, depending on what I felt like, I would impromptu perform in front of the camera. Now, at the same time, I I started to bring personal props. I started to bring like cancer wigs from my mother. I started to bring childhood Halloween masks. Uh, there's some with the American flag that my grandfather received from being in Vietnam. And I unwrapped it and started doing prayers on the balcony as though I was a Muslim. It, I, I just started trying on all these identities. So 
I brought this work to a to a shrink, and essentially what they alluded to, because I think the the psychological reasons here are important, that when you're a child and you don't have a safe enough home environment to explore your identity, you don't explore it. So if your parents are asking you to be their emotional harbor for them and they don't allow you to be a child, you know, then you end up sort of emotionally caretaking the parents and you don't realize your own identity. So here I am, mid-30s, I don't think I got that experience to unravel my identity, and here I am unconsciously unwrapping my identity into people's homes. Um, so I don't, I think the impetus when I started was sort of a poke at affluence and the idea of, of fake identities and you can't really own reality, but you can own an image of reality, which is more lasting, I think, than the reality itself. So I started to think more philosophically about the image taking and the, and the document, how it's going to serve later, what's it going to be. Um, so I think some of the environments were not necessarily in, I wasn't just looking at, wow, this architecture is so amazing. It was sort of like, this room feels very bleak. You know, I walked into like an Orthodox Jewish uh, room and there's a there's one image where I'm praying on my knees and apparently as a Jewish person you're not supposed to pray on your knees. So there was different impromptu sort of Sigmund Freud signifiers and Carl yeah, that just sort of prompted me in a certain capacity and I would look around and see if I could get away with this. Um, and I think part of the allure of this was the excitement that I could get caught. Um, what would they do if they walked into the room while this happened? Um, so I think the risk inherent in taking the image is almost the excitement that the viewer gets from looking. But I think also the irony of this work is that they look perfectly poised. The editing is perfect. So it doesn't look like you can't see the immediacy of the danger that is lurking on the other side of this frame. So the curator who I worked with, who works with the Getty Museum, and he's like an image master, uh, his name is Jose Antonio Navarrete, and he said to me, you're inviting people to come see a show about images, but they're not actually coming to see the things that this work is about. So in some ways, visual proof, as always, is the weakest proof of any idea. So you're coming to see sort of the result. And one of the most important things was I wanted to show people in the exhibition 150, all of them, 150 different portraits over eight years in secret. Um, because I wanted people to see the magnitude and the dedication to this body of work. Because again, I keep thinking, how do you make images that matter in 2023? Um, photojournalist images, because um, there are good, great, and then there are unforgettable images. And I think some of that unforgettable comes from a bit of risk. A bit like when I see reportage images that, you know, somebody's getting hit by a car and the reporter catches the person, you know, getting knocked out of their boots. There's like a time element to it. There's also a situational or like a, a political moment. And it just so happens that South Florida, the real estate is becoming so expensive. Everyone in the whole country, in the whole world, when I travel, people are like, Zach, of course I have a house in Miami. I'm like, why? Because you visit there once a year. you know. So sometimes I would walk into the homes and I would see the maids kicked up with their feet up, eating popcorn, with the glass opened, their backyard was the ocean, and I'm like, these are the people who are enjoying these homes, not the homeowners. So I kept thinking, this limited resource, like 
We have limited capacity. The demand is going up. All of this stuff. Meanwhile, we have these vacant sort of anesthetized interiors all over South Florida that no one's in. The maids are there hanging out, having fun. So I... Essentially, the realist, the realtor, the architect, or the whoever the shoot was for, got the exact same angle that these photos have. They just didn't see the other iterations where I started to play around at the end of the exposures. Um, part of the other thing is when I started doing photography, I was so poor that I couldn't afford good equipment. So I became an an incredible editor. So I started to learn how to take some of my friends work other people's work and elevate the perception of it through perfect editing so it really lent itself to real estate photography and I at the time I was doing a type of editing that people couldn't understand how it worked and I would compare it to maybe cubism with Picasso where everything started like real estate photography is a I feel like a new aesthetic in the annuals of photo if we're talking about photo as a language Real estate photography is hyper colors. The foreground, there's no atmospheric perspective. The foreground and the background are the same amount of saturation. Everything becomes a bit flat. So I kept thinking of this as like a, a new type of language. Like if you're gonna, uh, if I'm gonna make a new exhibition, I should have a new language to speak in this exhibition about. And I, sort of strange to me, found real estate photography as this new language that is used to promote idealized lifestyles for us to project our 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 uh, our future fantasies of how we're going to live um so i wanted to subvert that and the curator said to me what he's most interested in was that my presence in every single photo whatever i'm doing changes the reading of this image indefinitely so it goes from real estate propaganda to what the hell is that person in this reading whether i'm naked or i'm not naked or i'm just sitting in a chair and there were some moments where i just sat down i didn't do anything crazy because maybe i was commissioned by the tate modern to go photograph two andy warhol pieces that were priceless works of art and you know there's a lot of symbols in these photos that are not so overt but if you're an art person you're an art nerd you're gonna walk through these places and see certain masterpieces that are that are priceless so I felt like all I need to do is just sit and be in the presence of this and therefore this elevates the perception of me so I kept thinking about when you don't come from money and you don't come from affluence and you don't have a big name how do you change the perception of oneself in the viewer or in the eyes of the public and what I started to notice is as I started to post pictures of these grand interiors on my Instagram and on Facebook people started to comment and say Zach you must be doing really good Wow everything's going well for you and I thought wow because I'm posting pictures of interiors so I, I, I started to think about wow my, my value my perceived value is going up from this so it just sort of one one idea led to the other led to the other watching other people take duck face selfies and I thought I'm going to memorialize this experience in my life I also want to say there is an impetus of pain a tremendous amount of loss that spurred all of this um, in a period of 15 years I lost my sister to an overdose my mother died of cancer and my father died of cancer uh, they were both hippies they didn't treat interferon. They didn't treat the hepatitis C, and they just 
went one after another. So I think in that period of time, I kind of lost my mind a little bit. So I'm going in between the hospital, seeing my mom dying of cancer, and then going to photograph another $20 million estate. So I think that that's a really important um, catalyst for this because I think the split between my reality and the reality that other people were living was so different that I didn't see these as homes. They looked like movie sets to me. Um, in, you know, and I think furthermore, my idea of home was completely smashed. It was completely disassembled and broken apart. So when I would go into these homes and I would see beautiful family pictures on the mantle, beautiful couches, it looked like there was no problems in this environment. Like no one ever experienced pain or discomfort ever, you know? So I kind of, I started to reframe myself into these um, into these homes that had abundance, that had the abundance that I didn't have, let's say. Um, so I started trying on different identities depending on the impromptu response of the room. Um, also, I think because I started off as an editor, part of the way I edit images is I mask every single object in the entire room for absolute control over a vase, a lamp, the window, myself, everything. So I think they start to take on this aesthetic of renderings because the lighting looks like an impossibility. They, In my opinion, they are impossible photographs where the foreground's sharp, the background's sharp, the saturation is the same. There is a strange visual na uh, language that's happening in real estate photography. So I kind of see these as constructed paintings, if you will. The careful precision of color alignment, of making sure every object is perfectly lit, it's a certain amount of obsessive compulsive that I think I have turned into a way that I pay my bills. <laughs> that is an, incre an incredible story uh, and, and an incredible background. And I, I didn't realize I knew there was there was a degree of um, there's a degree of provocation involved. And certainly you can't take photos like this and not have a discussion about class. But I didn't realize until just now how personal it was for you. So that's that's extra interesting and meaningful. And it charges the photos with um, a different dimension. Um, I guess I'll have a question of a little more tactical, which was, what was the most challenging photo that you attempted out of the 150 that you got? And how? when did you come closest to getting caught where you were like, uh-oh, gigs up? Actually, okay, so there were many times that I almost got caught. So I think the excuses and the sort of navigating through the excuses became another part of the performance. So I started to realize that if I told the agent that the angle for this room is behind the door, so I need to keep the door closed so I can get the right angle. So you're going to have to excuse me um, so I, I can do this. So there were many times where the door would open, the camera would move, and I would say, wait, wait. Please, the camera's right behind the door. Don't don't walk in the room. And they, oh, Zach, I'm so sorry. Is everything okay? Everything's going great. No problem. And uh, there was one image, I think it's called Crush on You, where I'm at the top of a staircase and I'm naked and I tucked my penis back because I knew that if I kept my dick out, it would just become about my dick and I didn't want that. It was like a cheap parlor trick. And, and also... It was a moment where I was like, man, if I had a woman here, because there was a skylight, I just imagined that there would be a woman underneath this beautiful skylight with her breasts out and the whole thing. It's just like a, 
It's something that I imagined. And so I thought to myself, well, I can try on my femininity and tuck my penis back and try on my, my woman. And I think, I think there was a bit of freedom in that for me. Not that I'm confused about my sexual orientation, but that I think all men have a degree of masculine and feminine in us all. But I, I do think it's not explored and it's not spoken about. Um, maybe in the homosexual communities, it's much easier to have this kind of dialogue but with men men, guy guys you know my family asked me zach are you you confused about you know your orientation you know and i I was like god you're such a man you're such a dense human being that doesn't understand that we have this like spectrum so there was definitely there's another moment uh there was another image called avadon smiles and it reminded me of this image that Richard Avedon took of Natasha Kinsky with the snake. And she just had her back curved just so slightly. There was a bit of... So I feel like there's a couple in this series where there's almost like a, a gender non-binary moment. Where it's almost like... There were certain moments where the curator said to me, these are clearly heterosexual sort of moments where I'm like putting my penis on somebody's sculpture... Um, this guy spent about two, an hour and a half describing to me how important the sculpture was. And, and, um, and this was, I would say, the most mm, risky image even for me to look at because I, I didn't really deface or do anything harmful, which essentially I didn't really do anything harmful to this piece either. But I, um, I really was having a day where I just couldn't stand listening to the overzealous explanation of something that just didn't matter to me and I said when you leave I'm going to put my balls on this sculpture and I can't wait until you get out of this room and you know I would say that that there was a curation of images in the show about the adult because I think that there are there's so many ways to read this body of work you could talk about loneliness you could talk about architecture and interiors you could talk about privacy colors interior exterior um selfies and i i think that that was the confusion for me for years with this work that i was doing it honestly as a way to keep alive because i think when you're going back and forth between losing your whole family and you're being asked to document a lifestyle that you never reached and you may never reach i think the split between these two worlds was was a lot for me so i felt like you know what i may be the help i may be the this But I'm going to memorialize myself in a way that I will forever be sort of imprisoned in this beautiful interior. So, you know, sort of like a a vision board for my future Zach. Or when I'm 70 years old, I'm going to laugh at the insanity and the balls that I had to do this type of work. And um, I think when there's no risk, there's really no excitement in looking. You know, you guys are being privy. The whole world is being privy to seeing something that has been going on in secret for a long time uh it was hard for me to keep it contained you know i wanted to share i would send pictures to my friends like hey guy it was almost like um when you don't have enough money to go on vacations all the time or a couple times a year my vacation started to look like what new interior am i photographing this week and these people's homes started to become my vacations so in some ways it was like uh susan sontag says like Vacations are not even about the vacation anymore. It's just we need pictures that fun happened. We need the proof that this mattered. That you know. So I keep thinking of photography as a, a receipt or a password, much more than a printed image. Like I matter. 
So see, you know, I'm, I'm living my best life. Can't you see, you know, like that kind of thing. So I felt like this was a new type of personal propaganda. We treat podcasts much the same way. I don't know if it has quite the same effect, but yeah, I, I, I'm right there with you. Uh, so considering that you are a professional photographer and you work in this community, which is a, a small community where image is very important and everyone knows each other, has there been any blowback from the real estate community or from the art community now that the cat's out of the bag? I was going to say, did you burn all your bridges for this as part of that, or at least that part of your practice? Yes. Um, I think part of, like, I, I think that that was a major concern for this because to be quite honest, I didn't want to harm any of the realtors or any of the realtors' images by doing this. It was absolutely 100% not my intention at all. Um, but people also asked me, but Zach, how could you just overlook that? And I said, well, if you understand that I just buried my whole family and I was a bit out of my mind from, from sorrow, uh, like Brene Brown, who I love, she says, anguish, it like takes your bones. It's that, it's like pain to your bones. So I think, this became a way for me to wake up every day because just to go photograph real estate was definitely not waking me up in the morning, um, no matter what I was getting paid for. So I think, I think I've always used photography as like a, a way to heal. Um, and you know, instead of going to a therapist, in some ways the camera became my therapist. It became a way for me to reframe my own identity for me to see something different. Um, so I carefully thought about. How am I going to get away with this? What are people going to say? I'm going to burn bridges. Everyone's going to be upset at me. And this was, I, I tried to have the show a couple years ago and I was too afraid and I was too afraid and I was too afraid. And people definitely warned me, you are poking at people who could squish you, Zach. You know that, right? And I said, yes, but it's not about them. This was about me. And I think if people understood the multi-layers here, would you really be mad at a kid who buried his whole family who started taking selfies like everyone else in the house? I, I just did it maybe in a more professional, more creative manner. Um, and I kept asking myself, is taking a picture a crime? And these were like beautiful questions to ask in 2020. Like, is taking a picture a crime? Um, one of my favorite photographers, Ouija, used to photograph the night scene in New York of like dead bodies on the ground and all this stuff. And there was something charged about the images because it was like things that we don't usually get to see. So I think I had to carefully navigate this space. I had to wait until everybody's hands were not touching these properties and there was no association with this one or that one. And even if there was, what the attorney said to me was, well, if they try to sue you after they didn't have you sign anything that said there's no non-compete, there's, these aren't, you know, it was not a work for hire, even though I think two years later, this is a good little aside. So I donated a few of these to my former uh, undergraduate school, New World School of the Arts, for them to raise money to take the graduating class to Europe to go see more artwork. I knew they were gonna sell. They showed them at this place, Faina, very beautiful spot in Miami. And while they were on display, I think four or five of them, there was pictures being taken of these works and sent to some of my clients. And so I, at some point I started getting messages, Zach, are you getting naked in our houses? I see pictures of you in your boxers. I see do all this stuff. So they're like clearly sending me pictures of me. And I said to them, 
And I thought about this. When this happened, what's what's going to happen? And I said to them, you were right next to me. You don't think you would have noticed like a naked guy walking by you or something, you know? And they're... They, they 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 sat with it and they thought, yeah, I think I would. I was like, you guys are with me the whole time. Like, you think that this, like, when did I have time to do this? You were with me navigating the houses. So, like, how did I do this? And they said, well, this is you, isn't it? I said, it's definitely me. And it's definitely our house. But I can't tell you who took that image because I don't know what that image is. And I think from working with other conceptual artists, what they helped me do was they said, just keep keep prolonging it. The, that's not the image that I gave you. I don't know what this is. This could be a farce. Even to the point where the way it's edited, I edit the interior first for the architect, the agent, or the realtor. And essentially the exposures with me in it, I essentially just erase myself into these interiors. So arguably speaking, from a digital forensic point of view, this could all be made up. And none of this actually happened, which I love the ambiguity of this. Like, So I just kept rolling along with it as the questions kept coming i said well i think you would have noticed this i I mean i can't imagine doing this at the top of a staircase and you didn't see me run down the hallway naked you know and they kept saying to themselves i don't i don't understand i i guess you're right zach i was like so anyway fast forward a couple years after uh i was sat in the room by a group of agents and they said to me we need to buy the copy. We need the copyrights of all the past couple of years that you've been photographing images for us. And I was like, "Wow, well, you guys have sold probably in the billions of dollars worth of real estate. So what are the copyrights worth?" I'm like, "You know, um, they said, do you have a number? You know, I said you guys are welcome to purchase them because I understand that I am the the owner of the copyrights. I would have to forfeit them for you to own this." And he said, "Well, what do you want for them?" I said, "Well, I want like a quarter million dollars." And they started cracking up at me, and I was like, "Well." If you're not going to sell them and you're going to mock me, you know, then I'm just going to keep these and keep walking. And they said, you're really going to say no to X amount of money a year, Zach. And we grow with people. And we build the careers and this and that. And I, they said, what the hell do you want these real estate photos for? They're just real estate pictures. And I said to them, well, I make artwork out of them. And they said, well, what, what kind of artwork are you doing? I said, it doesn't matter. You guys don't care about that. And they said, you're really going to walk out of here and, and not work with us anymore and say no to all this money. And I said, I don't want to, but I guess you're asking me to. And I felt like the value that I had created as an artwork was far, far exceeded the value of what they had paid me. But also, conceptually speaking, most artists are waiting to sell their work. But in turn, I've kind of already been paid to make every single one of these artworks, and I've sold them. So in some ways, I'm not waiting to be paid or waiting for compensation. I was paid to actually make this artwork. They just didn't know about it. You know, so I feel like this really interesting sort of flip flop. I, I, I feel like I, I left with all the conceptual goodies that I could that I could fathom. You know, Zach, one of the one of the questions that jumps out of me for this is I, I guess sort of your take on these issues around again going back to image. And you mentioned earlier that it feels like a render to you. Like, one of, you know, from a position from a position of architecture, it feels like that the day to day product of architecture is the render, is the deck for the client. Like the built form, you know, may happen, but 90% of the work is done on conceptual projects as renders. And so I'm sort of curious your take on Miami, what it's evolved into. And I don't know, I, I mean, you've obviously been quoting Sontag and Cindy Sherman and many people around this, but I'm curious how it goes back to like architecture and the fact that, 
you know, uh, you know, an architect like Zaha Hadid has an instant visual signature that shows up very nicely and renders in an Instagram. Uh, one of the, you know, the tower that I most hoped you got into, I couldn't tell from any of the images, is Faina House, uh, Foster's Tower there in Mid Beach, and you know, significant. And I, I don't know. I guess I'm sort of curious your take on like the reality of this architecture to the extent. Is it even how much it has to be real, or perhaps your take on an architecture, an adjacent image making profession to you as a art, artistic photograph. Uh, photographer, uh, lens-based artist, right. apologies there. <laughs> um, but yeah, I guess I'm curious to take like, what, what, did, what did you learn about architecture in the course of this and its own sort of complicity in image making with the actual physical product being this like substrate that's not really necessary to the process of selling a lifestyle to people? Oh, correct. No, these are re- that's a really good question. Um, I think what I got to see... Well, for one, I feel like good photography, sort of like Leonardo da Vinci, uh, the old art masters, it's math. It's very perfect math. So I think some of the best architect architecture that I was invited to had a certain amount of uh, symmetry and precision of mathematics that I loved because, you know, Early photography was the photo secession and masters making perfect pictures, like as good as they could. Uh, Walker Evans, Edward Weston. And I think, you know, there's a lot of photographers that shoot architecture that use tilt shift lenses to keep the perspective correct. And um, I think I had no idea, to be quite honest, how serious architecture really was and the amount of thinking involved. So as I you know, my, my main business now is documenting fine art for institutions, museums, auction houses, etc. I'm no longer shooting real estate. Um, I think I was, I was really enamored at working with architects because they are artists, but it's a different kind of art. It's the art of living and it's the art of looking and it's the art of like, how much balcony can we squeeze out of this square footage? And so I feel like it was art with a practical concern for living space, for exterior, interior. Um, I think sometimes Miami, there's an artist that I work with. His name is L'Oreal Beltran, and he's from Venezuela. And he made these, um, he took basically kitchen granite kitchen countertops and with the cutout for the sink and made giant monolithic sculptures out of them as like these pillars because i think there are there are artists who poke at the bad finish and the sort of mcmansion if you will of south florida and i think people who don't really know architecture or the history of architecture can't tell the difference between the styrofoam column and a real marble column but there's this like play back and forth between I know what I'm doing here and I asked the architect to make this like McMansion part of my house that makes no sense with mid-century modern. It's like this complete mashup. It's almost like a a bad mixtape in some cases. So I think many of the places that I visited, um, I thought to myself, and I think that that's something that many people who have seen this body of work were most interested in. Look at the poor choices here with all of the resources on earth to make whatever choice you would like. And these are the choices that you make. So I I think that I was sometimes uh, wooed and persuaded with uh, architectural achievements where a master 
bedroom was hanging off the side of the house with no structural column to hold it up. Um, I think I was able to see... I was able to see architecture at the grandest of scales at the, with the best thinkers and the best mathematicians with dealing with space and spatial relationships. There's been many buildings that have asked, we, we have like an all-encompassing media firm, but that have asked us to create narratives that tell the story of these new type of buildings, the Zahadid building. And how do we talk about this? And I, as an artist, I'm always trying to come back to the point or the, the artist who thought about this. And we have to go to their work. Like Frank Lloyd Wright, we have to go back to the thinking of the structure and how this person thinks about space. Because every ar architect that I worked with was really different about how they thought about space. Even drywall. They showed me like different degrees of drywall perfection that I was like, geez, there, how much is this drywall? I mean, I just couldn't, you know, I'm like the poor kid going through Willy Wonka's chocolate factory and I, I just can't believe the amount of choices and, and options and spatial relationships and plant versus over here. We need a dining room table this. We need to, you know, it's a lot of thinking that I don't think the average person really understands um, or, or gets exposed to. I, I think, I'm trying to think of a building that, or, or a place that really, there was many that really knocked my socks off. Um, it was funny to also see some very high profile people um, and how they lived pretty um, minimally and modestly um, with not a lot of jazz around them, if you will. It was very simple and I think architecture kind of speaks to the person, if you will. Um, I actually just um, heard a TED talk um, in Florida a couple weeks ago, and this architect was talking about the future of these buildings, because downtowns are empty, and what are we going to do with all these condos? And he said, eventually, buildings are going to become uh, adaptable, where we're going to have these structures, and we're going to be able to insert offices into them, and people can, like a Mr. Potato Head, so that cities can evolve as they need to, uh, because space and our relationship to space is changing. And in Florida, one of the pressing concerns that I think I've asked many of the realtors and architects is, how do you keep building on a place that every expert that I speak with is telling me that we are going to be underwater at a certain point, and when it rains for more than two days here, we are underwater. So I'm like, how do you convince people to park millions, billions of dollars on the coast of the shoreline that's eroding and falling into the ocean? I mean, and essentially the response was like, people don't care, Zach. There's no state tax in Florida. So it's it's a really great idea to park money here. So I feel like there are moments that are really special here with old Art Deco buildings um, one of my clients owns the Alfred DuPont building in downtown Miami, which is the oldest Art Deco building in downtown. And he kept it the same, the same kind of, and it's almost like a time capsule walking into these places. Um, sometimes on Miami Beach, going to like the grandma's home or the, the older woman's home and seeing old Miami. And I feel like old Miami is getting replaced with new Miami pretty fast, faster than any of us could even imagine. Wynwood went from a scary place and I think, well, I, I, I have a million tangents here. I apologize. But documenting architecture and documenting fine art, I could pretty much map the gentrification that's happened in the past 15 years here. Artists come in, make the scary place not so scary. All the art shows happen, all this cool stuff. Everyone's hanging out. Now the big, the Rebel family comes into Alapata 
they buy a compound. Now all the art dealers are coming in and buying an Alapata. So now they're calling this Wynwood West, um, South Bow Harbor, uh, you name it. You know, a- any way to jazz up the coastline or the new area. So it's exploding in front of my eyes um, in a way that it's hard to keep up with. It's almost an unrecognizable city if you haven't been here for a little while. If you come back, you're going to drive through and think to yourself, oh, my God, I mean, we have the same amount of people come to Austin and Florida, except the people that came to South Florida brought, I think somebody quoted like $20, $25 billion, maybe even more to this city for development. I mean, every block has a new sky rise being built on it or an old one being knocked down for the replacement of maximizing square footage and revenue streams you know and i don't know because miami no one really thought about how the transportation system works here this was sort of built backwards we have the most intricate water pumping out system in the whole country because we are swamp that's below sea level at places so i think what's happening now is the the maximization of square footage is causing traffic that is insurmountable there's nowhere for these people to go or move or navigate, especially at Art Basel season. Good luck to all the out-of-towners who don't know about the amount of construction and things that are happening. It's, it's going to become a, an impossible city to navigate during regular business hours. You know? Wow. I mean, you've definitely taken us on a huge amount of navigation through, <laughs> I mean, everything. Marxism, politics, uh, real estate. <laughs> environmental catastrophe, Photoshop, renderings. I mean, we, we've managed to bake the world here in 49 minutes. I, I really want to thank you, Zachary. This is fascinating. Um, and I really uh, hope that uh, we can get as many people as possible into your show. Uh, Art Media Gallery, uh, Miami through February 23rd of next year. Uh, it's Zachary Balber, Intimate Stranger on Unfrozen. Thank you so much. Real pleasure, guys. Thank you guys so much. It's a real treat.